Hello and welcome to the Archimedes podcast of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, the evidence-based podcast where we take clinical questions that have had their literature searched, appraised, weighed, synthesised and come up with a clinical conclusion and then presented to you to work as a practising paediatrician in the most evidence-based way you can. Now, these are all generated by real people that are free living in the world. None of these are bots, none of these are AI, none of these are commissioned purely to fill the space in the journal. So if you've got a great clinical question, why don't you crack on and try and find the evidence behind it? Write it all up and send it to us along the instructions to authors on the Archimedes part of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood website. Then you too might be having your stuff chatted about, or maybe even get an interview. Now, the first part of this month's podcast is a little bit about the practice of evidence-based medicine that we like to call a critical appraisal note. You see, in this instance, I think we would all like to know, for some things, what would happen in the future. And this varies from different people for different things. I mean, for myself, I'd like to know whether Leeds Rhinos, which is probably the greatest rugby league team in the world, will finish next season, particularly given the last couple of seasons. But I do not want to know if and when I will become a grandfather. Um, but this this basic idea, the the knowing the answer to, the what will happen in the future, or or even in a medical context, if I do thing X, will L occur? It's something that we would like to be able to tell our patients if they ask, or the chance of those things happening. It seems even more prominent when the thing we are about to do is a really big thing, a one-off, a major occurrence, like an operation or a bone marrow transplant. If we're just given a medicine that could be started or stopped or an ointment or a puffer, then maybe it doesn't have the same importance associated with it. The challenge in terms of evidence underpinning these major decisions and prognosis of the future is sometimes in undertaking randomised trials in the areas. And there are trials in these areas. There are trials that have been done in transplant. There are many trials that have been done in surgery where different surgical approaches or the need for surgical versus medical treatment have happened. But there are many, many more where they haven't happened. What can we do in this situation then? Well, what we could try is the use of well-constructed prediction models where we look for prognostic factors, items that seem to indicate a later value that is better or worse than the average. And maybe we could use some fancy statistical approaches with propensity scores or causal analysis to try to understand it. We can draw what we can from the randomised studies that exist and then we can extrapolate them in different directions and extend that information and use those databases to test some of the prognostic things that we're thinking about. And we can avoid being drawn into the mythologies of pure pathophysiology. That is, I know how this thing works and therefore if I do this thing it must work. Because particularly if it's supported just by a single study or two or, or, or some work that's come out of a single place, they're not always reproducible and may not always be true. We can use the evidence that we have and our appraisals of it when we are discussing with our patients about what the right thing to do is. We need to be clear that predictions are uncertain and those uncertainties are both 
fundamental, it is impossible to know the future, but also they are imprecise. Our knowledge is unclear about what our uncertainties are in some cases. And if it warrants it, then these conversations can also be accompanied by the what if question, where we discuss what if this doesn't work? What would you want instead? If this doesn't happen, then what palliative options might we be choosing? Where else might we go? Making big decisions is difficult, and it's very difficult to come up with the best evidence-based approaches for it, but what we can do is make sure that we use the best evidence that we have, understand it as much as we can, and then we can use that with our patients to make the best decisions for them, bearing in mind what we all know. That's what evidence-based medicine is, and we can do it, even in these situations. Now, our first little snippet that's going through, and the clinical question that's arisen this time, is actually of a surgical thing. So this is Mr. David Colvin, who's a paediatric surgeon at the Royal Belfast Hospital, working alongside Thomas Bourke, Andrew Thompson, and Alistair Dick in that same institution, where they've been looking at the question, at what do you do if a small child, well, a two-year-old, turns up with a history of non-bilious vomiting, and you do an upper GI contrast study, and the radiology report suggests that there is malrotation. Now, of course, what we're meant to know is that malrotation leads very early on to bilious vomiting and an emergency procedure in the neonatal program. But but what happens if they've got through this and now they're just a little bit sicky and somebody's managed to do some sort of radiology that suggests it? The surgeons call this asymptomatic, even though it's not truly asymptomatic. It's that it doesn't have the, the proper symptoms of malrotation. Um, and so this group of surgeons went away and they looked to see what the evidence was on this matter. They searched in Medline and extensively to try and find what they could. Uh, and out of 109 possible hits, they came down to nine studies that came uh, to help understand what was going on here. And these are all, as you would expect, cohort studies where people have looked across the group of children who have been presenting with this, uh, either searching directly within their own institutions or across databases of surgical institutions. There are no RCTs in this area. But they are uh, extensive for the supposed rarity, I suppose, in my mind of what these are, with sizes between 30 or 40 children up to 200 and odd um, in the larger cohorts where they've pulled together things over the time. What the studies have primarily looked at is what has gone on to actually have a volvulus, a twist, um, which has then led on to problems. Um, and because this is a potentially life-threatening area, the problems that arise from that, including mortality and being surgeons, very sensibly looked at what if you do an operation, do you actually run into problems afterwards, complication rates on the far side? Very helpfully in the article, they do give us a bit of a review uh, about what happens to make malnutrition occur in the first place. And it's basically in embryonal life, the, the bits don't grow properly and then it twists around the wrong way. And the difference between the big twist that leads to a volvulus where it tightens off and just wibbles around a bit is a little bit unclear. 
It is very straightforward that if you have an acute malrotation, then you should go ahead and do a LADS procedure to stop this happening. But in the understanding beyond that, it's unclear. It's an operation. It has problems with it. If the kid doesn't have that many issues, is it the right thing to do? Well, pulling all these things together, actually, there's a fair risk of not operating on these kids and they will go on to have a volvulus, ranging between somewhere down at the sort of 15, 20% level, right the way up to 90% of these children leading on to actually go on and have volvulus if you left it long enough. Given that volvulus is a really uh, surgical emergency situation, then it probably is right that when you've identified this, you do move forward to surgery. And whilst there's no individualized risk available, as in when you see the features of malrotation on any individual patient, you can't say, are they at very high risk or very low risk of volvulus? They certainly should be having the operation in order to reduce the risk of volvulus. And I think this is another key point that they come out in the clinical bottom lines. The sort of vague symptomatology that will have driven the patient in and had them have the procedure is possibly not going to be fixed by the operation. The operation is about reducing the chances of volvulus and the life-threatening consequences of that. It isn't about reducing the chances of feeling a little bit sicky or having other vague symptoms that have led to it happening in the first place. Our final little snippet and evidence-based question also is sort of surgical and it involves sticking things in and making things better. Um, but this is from the cardiology team of Elizabeth Stockley, Andrew Singh, Tarek Desai and Professor Andy Ewer, all at the University and Birmingham Women's and Children's NHS Foundation Trust in England rather than Birmingham, Alabama. And they asked the question, can fetal echocardiograms reliably predict the need for urgent balloon atrial cestostomy in transposition of the great arteries? Now, this one I do know about. This is where your arteries on top of the heart manage to attach themselves the wrong way around. So instead of having a beautiful figure of eight circulation, what you end up with is two little circles where the lung oxygenates itself and the body uh, just doesn't. And this is quite bad uh, for babies when they come out. Inside, it's fine, obviously, fetal circulation and all the rest of it. But outside of your body, it's quite bad. And the only way the oxygen mixes is through the patent ductus arteriosus. And as that begins to close, that's when you run into problems. And so, an operation to temporize before the arteries can be uh, taken off and stitched back on again by people with amazingly good outsight and very very good hands before that can happen is to rip a hole um, through the top part of the uh, heart and allow mixing to be better uh, a balloon atrial septostomy now this is a relatively routine procedure, uh, I am told, uh, by cardiology types um, that happen in cardiology units. But not all babies are born in cardiology units. So can we predict, using the fetal echocardiograms when somebody spotted something on one of the developmental ultrasounds in pregnancy, can we spot which ones will definitely need this and which ones will be fine running along uh, on, uh, uh, on prostaglandin therapy rather than needing this emergency testostomy? Uh, 
It's a really interesting question because the implications of it will lead to whether a patient can be delivered safely closer to home or whether when it's about time for them to deliver they need an in utero transfer to one of these cardiology units. The team went away and they did uh, quite an extensive search looking at Cochrane, Medline, Embase, Sinal and the Maternity and Infant Care databases and they used a range of different techniques as much as they possibly could in order to bring back the evidence. What they found was that there were four relevant studies that had actually really specifically looked at this question. The studies were around about 40 or so uh, children in a couple of them, 20 in another, 130 in another, where they had drawn together either case series of small cohorts of patients to try to understand whether the echocardiograms then later went on to predict. Clearly these aren't prospective, what they've done is they've collected all the babies that had the TGAs and then they've looked backwards and they've tried to pull their fetal echoes to try and look for them. What they found was that there were some elements that seemed to be vaguely suggestive, but the elements that they saw were not definitive. If you had X, Y, or Z, then you could not definitely say that's one that would need an atrial septostomy, or more importantly, if they had A, B, or C, they did not need an atrial septostomy. And so despite the fact that there's a hint that this should happen, there aren't any consistent markers on the fetal echo that can reliably predict this. And their bottom line really is that they should be trying really hard to get these babies transferred while still pregnant, laboring perhaps across to an interventional cardiology center so that then an assessment can be made as the baby is out. If it happens that the baby is delivered in a centre without this sort of interventional paediatric cardiology support, then obviously there's an urgent need to get on prostaglandin therapy in order to keep the PDA open and then transfer across to the nearest cardiology centre just in case the procedure is required while waiting for a surgeon to come and fix things. What we have here are two really interesting and quite different than my normal day job uh, Archimedes is and what we love in Archimedes is to hear about the stuff that you do and the evidence behind it. Please do get in touch and we will speak to you next month with more evidence-based bits from the Archimedes section. <laughs>